Hello, and welcome to The Advance, conversations about news and the Mid-America Union Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. I'm Brendan Halleck, graphic designer for the Mid-America Union. In this episode, Brenda Dickerson, communication director for the Mid-America Union, talks with Daryl Hunergart, who is the religious liberty director at the Mid-America Union. They discuss how he became involved with religious liberty, some of the cases he has handled throughout his time at the Mid-America Union, and other events that have taken place during his time working for MAUC, including the reorganization of the Northern and Central Union Conferences into the Mid-America Union Conference, the Davenport Crisis in the 1980s, the GC vote on fundamental beliefs, and the history of the Union Office. We're here this afternoon with Daryl Hunegard, who since 1976 has served on the executive committee for what was then the Central Union and is now the Mid-American right. Union. There are a number of things that he re- remembers during those 30 plus years of, of service that he has given. And one of the things that was very big was the reorganization of the Central Union and the Northern Union into the Mid-America Union Conference. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, of course, Northern Union and Central Union were very small unions compared to the other unions in the uh, division. And so there was talk about merging them. It kind of started with Iowa and Missouri talking to each other. Even though Iowa was in the Northern Union, Missouri was in Central Union, they were talking about mergers just in the conference and it that had that pretty well uh, settled. And then the talk began of merging the two unions. Um, and that took a little while to accomplish. Um, had you know, a complete sl- slate of officers, a complete slate of directors, how we would merge, how, what it would look like when it was merged. A uh, lot of discussion of what the executive committee would be comprised of, how, would that, how that would be formed, and two, how the conferences within the union uh, would be formed within the new union. At the time of the merger, each state had its own conference. So Central Union had the five states in Central Union, which was Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas, and Missouri. And Northern Union's conferences were Iowa, North and South Dakota, and Minnesota. And so as well as combining the unions, there was talk and it did was accomplished of combining the conferences. The only conference that remained the same was Minnesota, which stayed as its own conference for that state. And is today still its own conference, right. the only one in the Mid-America Union. Right. So you're a fifth generation Adventist right. on one side of your family and a third on third generation on the other side. Mm-hmm. You've seen a lot of Adventist history <laughs> in those yes. years. Another big thing was what happened with um, Davenport mm-hmm. and I know that you have some memories of how that affected leaders here in Mid-America. Yeah. Um, That occurred just shortly after the mergers, also in the 80s. As you may know, Davenport was a doctor in California that uh, borrowed money from church organizations. 
and secured it with primarily post offices and telephone buildings that he would build and then uh, lease back to post office or telephone companies. And he had a financial reversal and so the collection of some of those loans was in question and also was a question of whether or not those loans fit within the working policy of the church for loans that should be made. So it was a big deal. Uh, virtually every union and many of the conferences were involved in that. And uh, for a number of years, there were meetings on the East Coast and on the West Coast uh, trying to sort through this whole thing. Um, Mid-America had a loan that came from Central Union and fortunately, apparently Davenport had a working relationship with the title insurance companies and apparently they did not do a good job of checking title and so the security that we had on our loan was actually a second lien, but the title insurance company insured it as a first lien. So we didn't have to collect our money from Davenport, we collected our money from the title insurance company because they guaranteed the title and of course the title wasn't what they guaranteed it would be. So we had an easier time than some of the other unions and other organizations in, in getting our money. Um, there was a lot of discussion about uh, church administration, church leadership. Ellsworth Riley was the president of Mid-America Union at that time. And for, for some reason, the general conference and the division felt that he should no longer be president of Mid-America Union because of his involvement with Davenport. I actually spent about three days in California going through Davenport's papers, checkbooks, because when he filed bankruptcy, the receiver, of course, went down and collected all of these things and they were under his control. And my investigation convinced me that uh, Elder Riley was not culpable in, in any way. But Elder Neil Wilson and Elder Bradford and the treasurer from the General Conference came to the Mid-America Executive Committee, asked the Executive Committee to terminate Ellsworth Riley as president of Mid-America Union. After a lengthy discussion, a vote was taken and it was two-thirds in favor of retaining Elder Riley as president. Another interesting aspect of that is Elder Wilson said that it was the General Conference Executive Committee that was asking for his uh, presidency to be terminated. And so the Executive Committee from Mid-America thought it would only be fair for us to explain to the General Conference Executive Committee why we didn't follow their recommendation. So there was a committee of three chosen to go back and meet with the Executive Committee and, and explain why we took the action we did. That committee was Dean Hubbard, who was president of Union College at that time, Mr. Sackett, who was president or CEO of Porter Hospital, and myself were on that committee and we uh, suggested to Elder Wilson, let us know when the executive committee meets, we'll come back and explain.
uh, we're still waiting for that invitation. <laughs> so the challenges that our church is facing in, in this time period may not be that different <laughs> from other questions of appropriate church authority and the working relationships between mm -hmm. the general conference, the division, and the unions and, and yeah. state conferences as well. Now it seems like a couple of the major issues that are facing the church are church unity and ordination questions. Uh, back in 1978, I was looking through some of the minutes and there were uh, discussions and uh, amendments to the working policy of the church and the church manual involving church unity and how ordination would take place. Now it didn't talk about women's ordination at that time, but just the process of ordination. And the unity was dealing with uh, disputes between church members that the church should set up uh, committees to handle disputes between members and disputes between church organization and members and other organizations. Um, at least here in Mid-America, that process was not used a lot. My own personal feeling is the church is not a judicial tribunal. And as hard as you try, it's difficult once people have that type of conflict to have them come away liking whoever made the decision and liking each other. So I'm not disappointed that wasn't put into effect. In 1980, you were a delegate to the General Conference session in right. Dallas. First one I went to. That was your first one, and that one was where the fundamental beliefs were discussed and right. voted. That was interesting. Um, a lot of discussion on fundamental beliefs. The one I remember particularly was one of the beliefs talked about having grape juice at communion service. And I wasn't aware of it, but apparently in some parts of the world, getting grape juice is very difficult, if not impossible. And so discussion was, does it have to be grape juice? And that caused a lot of discussion. I understand in some places they have to import raisins, or at least they did at that particular time, reconstitute them and then get the grape juice out of reconstituted raisins, which I thought was interesting. But I guess what struck me is if these 27 beliefs are so fundamental, why would it take more than one day of discussion to arrive at what our fundamental beliefs are? There was a lot of discussion in that. Uh, just one personal note, about that uh, general conference session, there was one adoption or one proposal for the working policy that talked about members uh, going to uh, courts and having lawsuits and having their disputes settled by worldly judges and emphasizing the worldly judges part. And my experience as, a, as an attorney has been Judges are fair, you know, we don't have apparently the same problems they had in biblical times. So I suggested that I didn't think it was the best policy to have 
words like that in our working policy, if judges would happen to come across those statements, uh, it, it just wouldn't be right. Uh, so I stood up and made a motion that that go back to the committee for reevaluation. And being a young kid that nobody knew, uh, the chair brushed me off fairly quickly. And uh, about 10 minutes later, an established Adventist stood up and said, you know, maybe there's a point, maybe we ought to restudy that. And it was immediately voted. So uh, I, I kind of chuckle at, at that, that uh, as a young unknown, you can be pushed aside fairly quickly uh, in some of those large meetings. Those are my recollections of that Dallas meeting. Um, just another uh, personal note, that same year was the 100th anniversary of the work being opened in Eastern Europe. And so Eastern Europe delegates had a special lapel pin that commemorated that. And I have a distant relative, John Hunergart, who was the first missionary to Eastern Europe. And so when a couple of the delegates from Eastern Europe saw my name badge, it said Hunergart, they got excited and gave me their lapel pin. And I still have that at home, which is, I think, kind of neat to have somebody uh, come up and recognize me as, as being a relative of that first missionary and uh, giving me their pin, which they prize pretty much. That's a real legacy of your family. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, if you go to the administration building at Union College, you'll see a golden cord hanging for John Hunergart. Uh, I su suppose one of the early golden cords. Let's talk a little bit about the different locations <clears throat> where the Union has been and mm -hmm. the various buildings. When I was first asked to serve on Union Committee, the Union office was in a converted house about 46th and Calvert. So there was no Union Committee room, so the committee meetings were held at Union College Committee Room. And at the time I first started serving, the Union Building at um, 70th and Pioneer was just in the process of being constructed and it wasn't long after that we moved into that building, large building, uh, which was needed at that time because when that building was constructed, the publishing work was also handled by the unions. And so the whole lower floor was taken up with the publishing work, I guess where they would package and mail out the books that had been ordered uh, through the Cole Porter work. So everything like that was handled at the union and a significant amount of employees more than uh, we have now at Mid-America Union. Uh, when that's stopped, uh, that building became obviously larger than the union needed. And for several years, there was a discussion about uh, downsizing the union office which eventually happened and it uh, moved to its present location. Initially, there was a tract of land across uh, 84th Street that the union had, and that's where the location was gonna be, and then through some events, 
the union got the property that we have now and the other one was sold. One of the, I think, amazing stories and, and leading the Holy Spirit is when the union building at uh, 70th and Pioneer was sold, it was sold for enough that this current building was able to be purchased or constructed out of those funds. Union College was given a million dollars to help in its financial situation out of the proceeds of the sale. And plus another million dollars was available for other process. So the Lord really was leading in uh, the sale of that building. Right now it's owned by St. Mark's Church and part of their campus uh, of their church there at that location. When it was being constructed, I had several people suggest to me that uh, the cost of that building and its construction had to be over $2 million, when in fact it was just right around a million dollars, maybe just a little bit over the million dollars. So the, again, the Lord was leading in the cost of construction of that building and then the increase in value so it was able to be sold and those proceeds used for work that wouldn't have been able to be done otherwise. Right. How many years was the union at that location? I'm not sure. It would. It probably moved in there about 77, 78. I don't remember when we moved from that building over here. But it was, it was a fair number of years. Got a good use out of it. Been here 20 years now. Oh, okay. This building and just completed the first remodeling process <laughs> right. in that 20 years. So probably about 20 years at that location. That was an interesting place to have the union office. It was, it was a really nice office, uh, but just was too big and it, at that time the discussion was downsizing the staff at the union, uh, which was accomplished. When I first went on executive committee, the philosophy was that the conference would have departments, the union would mirror all of those departments, and then the division would also mirror all of the departments. And it was determined, rightfully so, that the union did not have to have directors of all of the departments that the conferences had. They could be consolidated and the union could be a help to the conferences uh, in areas that the conferences themselves couldn't because of cost, size, whatever, really do economically themselves is where the union would, would uh, be able to serve the conferences. And so the union did downsize significantly uh, when it was moved here to this location. I think, and I'm, I'm not sure, I think it was Elder Sandifer that was president at the time all of those things were taking place. Uh, I've served under enough presidents, sometimes uh, time frames get, get a little muddy do you recall who was the president when you first started? I do. Uh, Elder Wally Coe was president. Uh, Harry Hawes was uh, treasurer. And Bill Lee was secretary. Uh, Elder Coe, soon after I started serving, moved to Columbia Union and was president of Columbia Union. And uh, Elder Riley then was elected president. And uh, 
Like I said, Elder Riley was president during the two major events uh, affecting the uh, Mid-America Union, Davenport and, uh, and the consolidation. We, we've been extremely fortunate in Mid-America Union in the presidents that we've had leading this union. Uh, having worked with eight different presidents, uh, there's not one of those presidents that I can say, I wish they had not been president or they don't, didn't have the uh, abilities or talents to be president. They had different talents and each one worked a different way. But uh, the leadership in Mid-America Union has been amazing. How about the executive committee? Has it remained pretty much the same size and, and type of makeup in regard to laypersons versus church employees through the years? Yeah, it really has. The major difference when I first started serving on the executive committee, all of the departmental directors for the union were also members of the committee. And somebody determined that that was not a good thing because departmental directors would just be puppets of the president and wanted to please the presidents. My experience has been just the opposite, that if anybody was going to speak up in the, in the committee meeting against proposals of the administration, it was likely to be those departmental directors. I think maybe because they felt more comfortable uh, discussing things like that than maybe the layman did who uh, just came in for, for meetings maybe three or four times a year. Uh, but other than that, yeah, the committees have been pretty much the same, equal, pretty equal balance between layman and, uh, and church employees. My, one of my interesting observations is the hesitancy for the committees generally to not go along with what the administration suggests and with good cause because most of what the administration suggests have a good basis for it and there's good reason for it. But once in a while uh, there's good reason to vote no too and uh, I have seen that happen and I'm really proud of the administration that we have had in that I have never seen any of the administrators really lose their cool because their ideas didn't pass the committee. There have been a lot of changes in society in the past 30 years. Um, the, the huge uh, emphasis on the use of technology now is a big one. Mm -hmm. um, and that has affected the church in various ways. Are there other changes that you've seen that have had a large impact? I think the way evangelism is being done has may, maybe changed over the years. When I first started to serve, the union had on its payroll oh, either three or four evangelists. And we don't have any evangelists on the payroll now. And so maybe the emphasis on the long evangelistic meetings, while they're still there, is, is maybe a little different than it was uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and of course, how they, they have their evangelistic meetings, I think, have changed because they 
also use the technology available to make it a little more appealing to the people that attend. Uh, but the biggest change, I think, is that the unions no longer have evangelists on the payroll. So can you tell us how you started to become involved with religious liberty? I think it was kind of interesting. When I first started serving on the executive committee, a local attorney, Asa Christensen, Bud Christensen, was the attorney for the union. He passed away and they asked me to uh, do the legal work, which I did for a while. During the time that uh, the Davenport issue was going on, we had a meeting down at uh, Southern University uh, and Joel Tompkins was president of Mid-America at that time. Joel enjoyed playing golf and I enjoyed playing golf. So between some of the meetings, he and I were out on the golf course uh, down by Southern University and he said, Daryl, would you be interested maybe in working with religious liberty for the union? Just like a bolt out of the blue. I, had, I hadn't even thought about it, hadn't considered it. Uh, so I, I told Elder Thompson, you know, I've got to talk it over with my partners and the law firm I was in. And um, so I visited and uh, thought about it, prayed about it and decided, yeah, that would be something that I would in, enjoy doing. I had never worked with the church, uh, you know, outside of a little legal work uh, for the union before that. And, and so I had no idea how departmental work worked, uh, what to expect. And uh, so I asked Elder Tompkins, uh, would it be okay if I came back and visited with the current Religious Liberty Director and just find out some things about how the whole thing works? He said that would be a good idea. And so I came back, visited with Hallie Krausen, got a little bit of information, a little bit of guidance. Uh, but I've got to say most of it was self-educated. It was totally different than any of the other legal work I had done. But I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that work. Uh, it's amazing to see the, the faith that our members have in, in what God will lead them to and putting their economic security on the line uh, when they won't work on Sabbath. Uh, and it's been amazing to see what the Lord's done. Uh, sometimes he's worked it out where they've kept their jobs. Other times he's worked it out where the subsequent employment was better than the one that they would have had before. Uh, doesn't always work out quickly and easily, uh, but the faith that, that Seventh-day Adventists have in the Lord uh, and how he's going to guide them if they stand firm with him has just amazed me over the years. Were how that works. The cases that you worked with dealing with Sabbath observance? Yeah, virtually all of them were. Uh, a few other issues, a few union membership issues, uh, which the church on paper has a strong position on unions, but in actuality, um, unions aren't all bad. 
I've had a couple of Sabbath employment cases where the union stepped in and helped the employee get Sabbath accommodations that we wouldn't have been able to get without the union's involvement. But when a person says, I sincerely believe that I should not be a member of a union, we assist them in virtually in all cases are able to resolve their union membership issues. Uh, I, re I remember probably the first uh, significant Sabbath employment case I had it was out of St. Louis. A church member worked as a civilian employee of the United States Army, and he was he worked with computers for the Army. The Army was changing its computer system worldwide, and the direction was nobody had any days off for roughly a two-week period, which covered two weekends. And so we had uh, this Adventist uh, employee definitely had a problem because uh, it was almost significant enough that even death was not an excuse not to show up at work. And I don't remember the rank of the officer that uh, we, were, we were visiting with, but it, he had a significant rank had a large office, so big office, big responsibility. So we visited with the officer and uh, three or four of his staff. And I remember the officer turned to the church member and said, if somebody wanted Sunday off for their religion, uh, what would you do? He said, I would work for them. I'd work for them for no pay if that's what it took so they could have their religious observance. And we discussed just the beliefs and his experience with the army and his employment. And at the end of our meeting, I remember the officer saying, usually in matters like this, I'll take some time to make my decision. He said, we can't afford to lose employees like this, this man is. He will have his Sabbath off. So as far as I know, he's the only person in the world that worked for the army that had those two Sabbaths off. Uh, it was just amazing to see the Lord work and touch the heart of the, the officer that we were visiting with. That is a great story. Not every situation that we have has the obvious good results like we had in that situation. I remember a member that worked for Chrysler Corporation and he asked for Sabbaths off. And Chrysler Corporation arranged so he would only work four days a week. He'd be paid for four days and wasn't paid for the rest of the time. Then they decided that they would insist that he work on Sabbath and I contacted the attorney for Chrysler and asked for accommodation. And he said, no, he said, under the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, if it costs the company more than a small amount or de minimis amount, uh, we don't have to do the accommodation. And uh, his not working is costing us more than a de minimis amount. His name is Reggie Crocker. I said, what do you mean, right, Reggie? Explain that to me. He said, well, he's working four days 
we have to provide health insurance for him. We have to provide vacation for him. We have to provide other benefits for him. And he's only working four-fifths of the time, but we're giving him five-fifths of the benefits. So that's more than a de minimis amount. I said, Reggie, you can't be serious. He said, yeah, we went to court. We lost. The court agreed with Chrysler Corporation. It was appealed to the uh, courts of appeal, and we lost at that level also. Um, I'm not sure what happened to that uh, particular member. Uh, didn't hear much after that, so apparently, uh, if I don't hear from people, I'm assuming good things are happening. Uh, I remember one other case out of Kansas. Uh, our member worked for Learjet, and we had filed a complaint with Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and they had set up a mediation hearing in um, Wichita, where Learjet was headquartered. The morning of the hearing uh, went to the mediation location. The mediator said, we've got a problem. The person that was going to represent Learjet, his wife had a medical emergency and he can't come, and so they're looking for somebody to come and, and uh, represent Learjet. And so when they finally got there, the mediator turned to me and says, do we have time to go ahead and finish this? How's your airline schedule? I remember suggesting that, well, if Lear would fly me home, I have all day. Uh, did not elicit a positive response from Lear. But what was amazing about that, Lear's position was they were short-staffed. They had to have everybody working full shifts. They couldn't be without them. Our member, of course, would not work full shifts because part of that was on Sabbath, which amazed me because if you were short-staffed, wouldn't you rather have somebody work four days than no days? And this, this member was just an amazing person. His, his van quit working one morning, couldn't get it started. His place of work was about five miles away. He walked the five miles to get to work. They gave him demerits for being late. Uh, it, this fellow was just so dedicated to his job, and yet they, they didn't care. They just wanted to have complete control. They wouldn't did not want him to have his Sabbaths accommodated because then apparently they wouldn't be in control and couldn't tell him that he had to work in spite of the fact that he didn't. Uh, sometimes it's hard to understand why employers take the positions they do, but they do and we just have to deal with it. You mentioned that the union was able to give a significant amount of funding to Union College. What has been the relationship between the Mid-America Union and Union College? Mid-America Union has always been interested in the success of Union College, always offered the support that they could without interfering with what Mid-America's uh, tasks are, duties are. Uh, it was amazing that the million dollars that I had mentioned Union College at that time has just gone through some significant financial issues and the future of Union was, I'm not sure if it was in question, but at least it caused significant discussion because they were 
deeply in debt without apparently a lot of answers to how that would would work out and so the union gladly helped Union College out with that uh, special gift of the million dollars. Uh, and I know throughout the years when Union needs something and the, the, when Union College needs something, the Union is more than willing to help in any way that it can to ensure the success of the college. The management of Union College isn't under the direct control of the union, although the union president sits as chairman of the board of Union College. But Union College is an important part of Mid-America Union, and I know the union will do what it can to make sure the success of Union College. And also, the union has a bridge with uh, theology majors connecting uh, theology majors with the conference presidents uh, to work out a place so they have the opportunity at least to visit with presidents uh, to get a uh, position as a pastor or to be sent to uh, Andrews University for an advanced degree. Uh, so yeah, there, there's, there's a cooperative relationship between the college and the union. Uh, but not a direct management relationship. I just, I would like to close by saying on behalf of the administration and all the constituents through the years of Mid-America Union, we would just <laughs> would like to thank you for your many years of service and all that you have given for building up the constituency and the work of God here in the Mid-America um, Territory. Uh, thank you. I, I don't consider it a giving. I think it's a receiving. The blessings I receive from the association with the people at the union, the local conferences, I, I just can't express how, how grateful I am just to have known these people and, and their management and leadership abilities that they've shown over the years in keeping Mid-America as one of, at least in my opinion, one of the foremost unions in the North American division.